Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Welcome to episode 22 of Sprogcast. We just had our two-year birthday. Can you believe that, Karen? I can't believe it. That first telephone call where we thought, will it be a good idea? Won't it be a good idea? We've... You said you were going to do six episodes and that would be it. Well, I didn't know you. Did I? <laughs> oh, I didn't know you either. <laughs> I, I, we definitely disagreed straight up. I do tend to these days search out people that disagree with me. Um, because as I've said before, it kind of broadens my perspective on things because I realise that I'm only ever partly right. I know that puts me in a group of particular people. <laughs> it does. I'm not entirely happy. <laughs> it's a good way out. You should be because, you know, it, you surround yourself with people that re, that kind of reinforce your perspective on life. You end up seeing very little that's that's different to what you currently think. That's interesting. And I think um, later on when people are listening to the interview we've got with Johanna Rhys-Davis from Birthrights, she talks about the echo chamber as well. Without a doubt, we're all living, certainly living inside echo chambers. It's the, it's how we perceive reality. But anyway, Martin from Pinter and Martin accused me of being a bit too philosophical last time. So I'm going to dial it down. You weren't philosophical. You were just pretending to eat mince pies. <laughs> Don't change, Mark. You carry on doing what you're doing. It's good. Thank you. Well, on Sprogcast today, uh, we're talking about the big news uh, in midwifery, the Nursing Midwifery Council's decision about the insurance for independent midwives. Uh, we're also chatting with an amazing anaesthetist, Dr. Attila Jonas, his unique approach to epidurals, which honestly, listen to it because it's amazing. And Joanna Reese davis from Birthrights. I think you know, I'm Mark Harris and she's Karen. Hi, Mark. Um, we're going to um, start off by talking about the subject that's on our minds, um, the insurance issue with um, Independent Midwifery UK. Um, then we'll put in um, Dr. Attila, because he's very, yeah. very interesting, and finish off with Joanna Rhys-Davis, because she's very upbeat, and I think that that would be a nice place to finish. It's much on my mind, because, you know, if we take aside and and we shouldn't but if we take aside the suffering that the independent midwives are going through at the moment you know remember they're all self-employed and this decision from the nmc basically cuts off their ability to earn a living so so that constitutes you know major suffering in the lives of midwives then we think about the suffering of women who suddenly having chosen an independent midwife suddenly now do not have access to independent midwifery care care that they've paid for you know care that they've been expecting and when you think that the vast the majority of these women that are choosing independent midwives are choosing for for reasons related to sometimes their previous experience yeah, you you don't choose an independent midwife by accident, do you? It's a very, very serious decision um, with implications for, for, yeah, how you feel about it, whether that's down to previous experience, whether you're currently not feeling supported within the NHS about the way you birth, um, yeah. or it's just something that feels important to you. It's This is not a trivial thing. It's not. And we're talking about 80 midwives. I think the figure that I've read in various uh, articles, 80 midwives are affected by this. You know, that means but upwards of 80 families who three weeks before Christmas uh, were told what you planned, 
what you've prepared for, what you paid for, you can't have. My heart goes out to women who are going back into the NHS having made a conscious decision not to do that. Yeah, well, don't forget that there will be women in parts of the country where the local service cannot guarantee um, them a home birth. Yeah, that's the case locally for me. There's no home birth service, really. Let's assume that people are making these decisions for uh, compassionate and uh, compassionate reasons and with the best interests of their client group in mind given their perspective okay so it if we take that that assumption then there's something genuinely inadequate about the insurance in in which case it's a positive decision and it's important that it's made and the important thing is that there's a, a move forward that somehow helps them to find this insurance that does work so if that's the case, well, then we have to look at their position, um, see their reasonings and their logic, and then we can make a decision about whether it's a good decision or not. It seems from what I've read that the NMC have not been clear about what they consider adequate provision to be. Right. So without knowing that, how can we even have a view on it? We we know a couple of things, don't we? We know that IMUK have been in discussion with the NMC over a period of months about their indemnity cover. We know that. And we know that the NMC have come to a conclusion that it's inadequate. From the letter that's published on our page that Birth Rights Charity wrote to the NMC, it, it's become apparent that the NMC have not been clear about what adequate cover is. Yeah. You know, you know, prior to 2014, the vast majority of truly independent midwives practiced without indemnity cover. And if you want my opinion on that, I never thought that was a good idea. Right. The issue now is what is adequate um, insurance cover for the birth period, you know, for the intrapartum period? You know, if you're measuring adequate indemnity cover by hospital births, you might come to the conclusion that upwards of £10 million worth of indemnity cover was what you needed. If you were measuring the need for uh, insurance cover in the contexts of birth incidents that happen in the home environment, and it's my understanding that IMUK did a lot of research uh, about what kind of incidents happen in a home birth environment and what has been the historical payout required Uh, from an insurance company in that context, it's my understanding that the amount would be quite a lot less than 10 million that's required. Mm -hmm. The key is adequate insurance, given the context that you're practicing in. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. So what we're saying is we need to um, have an appropriate level of insurance for the likely payout. And the likely payout is not as high with a home birth as a hospital birth. Exactly. So, so, so adequate and sufficient has to be viewed inside the context that you're practicing in. Yeah. And that it seems to me, and I'm not privy to any inside discussions, but it seems to me that the, the, you can research that based on historic payouts in the context of a home birth. I don't know, there must be something I'm missing, but, but it seems that you could come to a conclusion about that quite easily based on historic data. Okay, so what we're really um, getting to here is that we don't know enough about the actual insurance to make a view on on what's what's really going on here. But we can look at the consequences of this decision, which is, um, as I think we've got a 
quote from somebody on Twitter. Um, Jessica Smart, a midwife, um, whose Twitter is at Jess Midwife, says we, we are currently unable to care for our clients in labour. For the most part, we cannot even attend the birth. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, they've been instructed apparently not, they can't be involved. Yeah. I mean, everything we've ever said about birth, about being calm, being confident, being relaxed, being safe, has been taken, swept out from under their feet like a carpet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's very easy to get drawn in to the, the conflict nature, you know, even in the letters between, um, even in some of the reporting that we published on our, our page, you know, the language is adversarial. You know, what we need is a, is a look at the facts. Yeah. Uh, and, and once we have the facts, we, you know, we, we can come to some conclusions about the details. But what we do know uh, as a fact is there are independent self-employed midwives that cannot earn a living today. And, and there are families that are now looking forward to birth with fear and anxiety. That can't be right, can it? It seems to um, be... a complete contradiction to um the the current sort of thinking in birth and the the movement towards supporting choice i i do understand that you need a regulator you know the nmc is a, is a is a regulatory body isn't it you need a regulator in order to maintain safety uh, of people that are receiving the service and to support the development of the professionals that are accountable to that service. So, so you need that. So it's balancing the need for, for safety and professional development uh, with choice. That's always going to be a balancing act. There just seems to be a lack of transparency. So who is this, this Nursing and Midwifery Council? For, for us non-midwives, tell me what their role is. They are a regulatory body that establish standards and codes of practice for healthcare professionals, nurses, midwives, um, mental health nurses, learning disability nurses are all on various parts of the register. They make sure that we maintain uh, continual professional development and they, they make sure that we practice within guidelines, you know, if, if uh, within codes of practice, it, it's, uh, it's about keeping the public safe and about keeping our professions moving forward and developing it's a big problem in terms of choice at the moment but for me it's a big problem when it comes to how midwifery develops in the future you know if all midwives only ever practice inside institutions i.e the nhs or even private midwifery providers it, it potentially will uh, slow down uh, innovation inside midwifery yeah I think that's really important to, to have um, a body that holds up standards and maintains registration yeah. and, and things like that. Where I think there are long-term implications is that every um, area of practice, if you like, every area of society, if you, are, you, are, you ask me, uh, needs mavericks. It needs independent thinkers who are willing to, to challenge uh, the status quo. Who are willing to challenge uh, the edges of, of, of what's considered um, uh, normal and mainstream. It's how professions move and develop and change over time. If all of our midwives are working within institutions that, let's be frank, are not only constrained by codes of practice, which 
we're, we're saying is a good thing, are also constrained by the local institutions, guidelines and policies. Mm. You know, I'll give you an example. My daughter gave me this example the other day when we were talking about this very issue. When she was pregnant with her first son, um, her, her waters broke. The hospital had a policy that once a woman's waters broke, she should be induced after 24 hours because of the risks of infection. Yeah. That was the hospital's policy, okay? Yeah. It just so happened that around about this time, um, the the evidence had shifted slightly from 72 hours being a, uh, an acceptable period to 24. Uh, an NHS midwife would be not only constrained by her code of practice, mm. she would also that be constrained by the local policy. The local policy had had responded to changes in the evidence. Yes. Yet the evidence itself was still um, not conclusive about what period of time uh, is the best period of time to, to be waiting for the birth to occur. Right. You see, an independent midwife has the option of reading all the available evidence, making a, a judgment based on her own reading of the evidence and offering her opinion about the evidence to her client, who then would respond to the evidence. And the independent midwife doesn't have the additional constraint of her institution's policy. So she can give more individualised support, is basically... Yeah, I'm sure my NHS colleagues would say, well, we still do that. But there is an additional pressure that the institution brings to bear because of its own insurance policies. And honestly, if I listen to birth stories, which I do a lot, and I hear women talk about what their experience has been, protocol does seem to trump personalised care on more than one occasion. Yeah, well, there's a, the difference between protocol and guide guidelines. You know, often hospitals say these are guidelines mm. uh, be, because if compliance with guidelines is a, a requirement of your insurance provision, yeah, not, not following the guidelines has a bottom line implication for the trust. So doesn't all insurance basically undermine individualised care? Potentially, the need for insurance cover... Uh, has an impact uh, upon uh, what becomes important to the institution. Mm. And th that's always, I, I think, going to be the case. What independent midwifery was offering and will go on offering, we hope, is is a different choice for women. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's been removed. And I, I hope sincerely that it gets rectified and sorted out in the short term. Yeah. And we're not going to go down any conspiracy theory route with this, but it's going to be very interesting and it, it does feel quite concerning to see what happens next. I think it's a good time, Darren, to mention our sponsor. This broadcast is bought, brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter & Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga. And you can find them at pinterandmartin.com. <laughs> the, the latest book um, is New Thinking on Improving Maternity Care, um, International Perspectives, and that's um, a series of chapters, um, a little bit like the Raw Behind the Silence, not as many chapters, but they're um, maybe a little bit longer. And it's 
the, the team of editors includes Sue Down of yeah. Raw Behind the Silence. Oh. And it's a book that kind of um, draws in experience from around the world and research from around the world. And um, it's sort of looking at the best possible evidence and examining the, the practices in midwifery and in birth worldwide and why right. things are changing. And it sort of sets them within a specific set of theories. I can tell you what the theories are, if you like. Yeah, now go on. Um, there's salutogenesis, which right. is a, a big word that I did not understand until I read this book, um, which basically right. means kind of a, a, a wellness attitude. So knowing right. knowing that you, you've got the resources and can cope with some some kind of adversity um, a medical or social model so it's comparing the attitude that birth is normal until proven otherwise against right. the attitude that it's um, inherently dangerous a humanizing model and the model of compassionate care and so each chapter is set within one of those four frameworks that sounds interesting to me in fact my copy hasn't arrived I, I, it intrigues me, you know, that our frames of reference or the context that we hold uh, things in affects the meaning that we make. I mean, for example, my old GP friends would always say birth is only normal in retrospect. They use that phrase in this book. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have that as a context, all your behaviours are modulated and affected by that context. I hear that from the other end as well with parents where they'll describe um, if they've had a straightforward birth, they'll be like, phew, that was lucky. We got away with it kind of thing. And even frankly, sometimes when their birth hasn't been all that straightforward, they'll still refer to it in, you know, positive terms in that, you know, it, everything was OK in the end. Yeah. Well, let's be honest, that that frame of reference that says birth is only normal in retrospect is one way of seeing it. The other frame of another frame of reference is birth is is a normal life event. Mm. Both are modulating and changing the way you're seeing the information that's in front of you. So, so both are right and both are wrong. I think this is a real challenge for um, people doing antenatal work because um, most of us, I think, I don't know, um, certainly sort of from my professional background are in that social side of the model where we are saying births normal until proven otherwise and yes all the interventions exist for when they are necessary and sometimes they are yeah. necessary but they're not routinely necessary um, whereas um, parents-to-be seem to be deeply entrenched in this medical model they're, they're bringing the fear well it's the water we're swimming in isn't it as a culture yeah in in many ways and um the language we use is never neutral you know the idea that that we can give information in a truly unbiased and objective manner for, is a, is is a myth and an illusion but i think it's a useful myth and an illusion because we should do our best to be giving as much uh, information as we can but our own personal ways of seeing the world is always influencing the information we're giving and the way we give it with with this particular sort of social background the, the birth is normal background you want to be able to empower parents to to know that and and be confident in it to have this um theory of wellness 
and that that it's it's meaningful and they can cope with it and they've got the resources and it's just something that people do um and being aware at the same time that that in itself is a bias as you're saying and that the people hearing you speak in an antenatal class are um not coming from that same philosophical philosophical place most of the time it makes it really hard to communicate it does but at the same time as holding that frame of reference i'm aware of the dangers of being blinded by it yeah and 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 that's the tension i think that those of us that work in this area are holding all the time you're right and i think that one of the strengths of good antenatal education is when you're not blinded by it you're aware of it you know that's where you're coming from but you know that that's not necessarily where all your clients are coming from and you can try and help to um keep their minds open without undermining their feelings and their choices i I think and i think the way i do that in my work is 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 i am, am aware of where they're coming from and do my very best to start there yeah. So I have lots of developed ideas about the use of language and some words I think are more, generate more resources inside the person I'm talking with than others. You know, like I tend not to use the word labor. I talk about birthing process. I tend not to use the word pain. I talk about urges and tightenings. But if the people I'm working with come in using the vocabulary of labor pain and all of that i start with that vocabulary when i'm communicating with them well yeah because if you're clearly not using their words if you're clearly going with urges instead of pain there's a good chance that they're going to put up some barriers that those words are going to put up some barriers yeah it's it for me it's the it's the process of developing rapport with your client group you start where they are you know knowledge is isn't transferred it's built inside people's experience. So I have to start where people are in order to gently offer things to their map of the world that, that currently aren't in their map of the world. But I have to start with where, where they are, how they're seeing the world. Yeah. I, 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 I tell you what, it's why talking to Attila blew my mind. Well, let's listen to him now. That would be really a good time to put him in here. Thanks for being with us today, Attila. Would you um, start off by just introducing yourself? So my name is Dr. Attila Jonas. I am a consultant anaesthetist and uh, um, I am a hypnobirthing practitioner, a male doula and a birth trauma release specialist as well. My aim is basically to uh, make uh, the birth uh, a better experience to um, women um, whom I met uh, and uh, I meet in my life. So that's is that is basically my my uh, my target and my goal. Yes. What, where, where are you from originally? I am from Hungary originally, and I came to the UK uh, in 2010, seven years ago. So I've been working in the NHS now for seven years. I've got a few questions that. Um listeners to the show have kind of asked me uh, t- to ask you. In fact, it's a question I often get asked by men. What, what would you say are the fors and against when it comes to choosing an epidural? So basically, uh, I would uh, classify uh, the epidural as uh, a medical approach uh, to manage uh, labour pain. And uh, so basically, um, I think uh, there are... with all the medical interventions, um, 
there are pros and cons uh, uh, for and against an epidural. In favor of an epidural, I would say that uh, this is the technique uh, the least uh, affecting the baby because uh, the medications uh, administered through the epidural doesn't uh, reach the fetus or uh, the baby in uh, in uh, massive uh, quantities. So therefore, uh, the baby is usually very unlikely to um, get uh, any medication from the epidural. It is usually very safe and effective. And now actually we are able to uh, give uh, or build um, a walking epidural as well. Um, and this is uh, meant to preserve uh, the woman's ability to change position and uh, and um, to help uh, not breaking um, the, the the communication between uh, uh, the birth canal and uh, and the womb. So uh, that is basically um, the, the the pro the favours uh, of the epidural. I, I tell you what, I speak to hundreds of student midwives throughout the country and, uh, you know, I don't hear many stories about completely mobile epidurals. You know, when I was a student midwife, um, we, we saw completely mobile epidurals uh, with the use of fentanyl. Yes, yes. An intrathecal technique. Yes. Uh, so basically, um, ep- uh, fentanyl is um, mixed with uh, the local anesthetic uh, solution uh, into uh, the epidural bag in order to uh, to be able to decrease uh, the local anesthetic concentration in the, the epidural mixture. This means that uh, we may be able to preserve uh, the leg muscle function and muscle power at the same time giving uh, um, a more um, effective pain relief as well. Yeah, well, when I was I, I was practicing as a newly qualified midwife when the Comet trial was going on. Yes, yes. Based, based in Queen Charlotte's, I think, but all around the country. And yeah. I, I looked after women that would walk around the labour room and would get a sensation and would come back in the room with the head visible. I can imagine and uh, I understand what you're talking about. So this was basically the Comet trial, the comparative obstetric mobile epidural trail in 2001. And um, it was um, uh, conducted on uh, roughly 1,000, uh, 1,050 for whatever first-time mums. And uh, we all know that um, um, at the, with the first baby, it is usually um, the longest to uh, get full dilation of uh, the cervix. And, uh, and this is the time, actually, when uh, the mum may be... Um, asking for for an epidural uh, just to help alleviating this pain, uh, they managed to um, to well preserve um, the muscle tone uh, uh, and the bearing down reflex uh, in this uh, population in this uh, um, uh, group. And uh, basically, at that time, uh, they used a, a very strong 0.25 percent uh, bupivacaine um, local anesthetic. Sorry, I, I'm trying to. Um, um, uh, avoid these uh, medical terms. Basically, a uh, very strong uh, and a local anesthetic solution. They uh, started to give uh, a low dose local anesthetic solutions as well. So nowadays we use uh, um, this 0.1% um, local anesthetic solution, which is uh, 
basically much lower, uh, less than half of the concentration. So the previous 0.25% came down to 0.1%. And um, so that's why actually uh, this mobile um, um, epidural technique managed to uh, dramatically uh, decrease uh, the the instrumental delivery rates, which means that uh, we needed to use forceps and vacuum um, much less frequently. Uh, it is very easy to imagine uh, if we numb uh, the whole uh, pelvis and uh, uh, the whole hip um, and lower uh, tummy, uh, it will just break uh, the communication between uh, the birth canal, the vagina, and uh, the womb, as uh, um, they have to work in a, in a very synchronized manner. So that's, that is the important uh, thing uh, with the walking epidural. So we don't break this communication between the vagina and, and uh, the womb. Right. Well, well, back when I was uh, looking after women on the Comet trial, when it was going on, um, there were a couple of things that were different as well. I, I mean, first of all, uh, no continuous fluid therapy. So they wouldn't be attached to a, a drip. Drip, yes. Uh, and well, they would for a top up, but uh, they wouldn't ordinarily. And secondly, no need for continuous fetal monitoring if there was no other indication. Yes, yes. I think uh, this uh, probably promoted um, changing positions as well. So um, the woman didn't have to um, um, lay in bed in, a, in the same position for several hours uh, during labor. Yeah. So the mobile epidurals that we've got now, I mean, from the Comet trial, you've already mentioned that uh, the, the Comet trial seemed to show that it re um, the mobile epidural reduced the need for instrumental birth and stuff like that. Uh, the Comet trial didn't really get taken up, did it, afterwards? Was that because of the, the level of the medication or was it because the technique itself it involved uh, an intrathecal part? It was probably not uh, the intrathecal part with, uh, what uh, um, impeded its uh, popularity because uh, uh, it used uh, a third of 30% uh, of this group uh, got um, um, this um, technique called um, CSC, Combined Spinal Epidural Technique. Uh, the other two uh, groups uh, uh, got uh, the, the higher 0.25% uh, local anesthetic uh, backups, top-ups, and uh, the other group uh, got uh, this uh, low dose um, um, injections. Uh, so uh, I don't think that was um, the hindrance behind uh, this uh, technique uh, be, uh, becoming popular. I think uh, one more um, factor we, uh, what we should consider is probably the staffing of, uh, of um, a birth uh, unit. If only one anesthetist is uh, involved and, and is on call uh, uh, to give an epidural, they uh, might not have enough time to uh, stay with the woman and uh, gradually build up uh, the epidural. Because during my pra um, practice, I, I usually spend about um, at least half an hour or um, an hour with, the, with every single woman um, giving an epidural because um, before giving an epidural, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do other things as well and uh, trying to build the epidural up. Uh, very slowly and very cautiously trying to preserve this leg power and, and uh, not uh, breaking uh, the communication between the womb and the vagina. I mean, that opens up the discussion about how you practice, Attila. Yeah. So, t t tell us a bit more about that, because it, it, does, it does sound, if you don't mind me saying, yep. unusual. 
Oh, thanks very much indeed. Uh, I think it was a compliment. <laughs> it was meant as, as a compliment. <laughs> yes, thanks very much indeed. I agree with you that my practice is probably unusual uh, in its good term. So uh, basically, I, um, I tend to respect uh, the woman um, inbuilt bodily mechanisms and trying not to break anything uh, inside in terms of, uh, of um, physiological bodily mechanisms of the birth process itself. So uh, basically, my, uh, just very briefly, I um, started um, my journey with hypnobirthing and uh, doula studies uh, after working for a major central delivery suite um, of a university hospital where I was on call and then and, and I was always called uh, to give an epidural and, and uh, I, I found women in, uh, in, a, in miserable conditions, uh, tearful and, and uh, just uh, in, in, in an excruciating pain. And I started to think about uh, what else I can do beside an epidural or instead of an epidural um, to help these uh, ladies um, to, to make their their um, their birth, uh, this very precious moment of life, uh, a good experience. So basically, when I um, I am called to to give an epidural, I um, enter the room, and uh, the first thing I do is to start with calming the situation down. Because um, from a simple medical point of view, um, it is very difficult to uh, stick a needle into someone's uh, backbone um, with with a very tense uh, backbone which means that the, uh, the spaces between the, the, bone, the bones are very narrow. And therefore, um, it is very difficult to, to insert uh, an epidural. So this is a very simple reason. However, uh, from uh, a hypnobirthing point of view, I'm just uh, starting uh, to utilize uh, the woman's inbuilt bodily mechanisms. So basically, uh, I, I, I dim the light, I don't shout, uh, I, uh, I use a very calm and, and uh, reassuring uh, low tone of voice. And um, th this way, I manage to calm uh, the woman down and, and start uh, synchronizing her with her, um, with her normal birth uh, rhythm. So uh, this is basically a breathing technique and a little bit of uh, positioning as well. Uh, if you... Uh, in an ideal situation, the woman is kneeling on the bed and using the gravity. This is very important, not uh, laying in the bed, but using the gravity to uh, get the baby out. If the woman is not kneeling on the bed, I usually ask her to uh, sit on the side, on the bedside. And uh, this is also helping um, uh, the baby co uh, coming out. And um, after that, I um, keep contact with the woman and, uh, and start opening the epidural pack very slowly. The, the woman uh, is usually hoping to get help uh, from the epidural. That's absolutely fine. However, uh, it will be her body uh, which has to do the job ultimately. It won't be the epidural. The, the epidural can help a little bit uh, or give her some uh, breathing space and that's it. But ultimately, it will be her body and her, um, her instincts and her, her uh, will, basically, her mind, uh, which needs to do the job. So... Um, I start uh, opening the epidural and uh, hopefully by the time I open the epidural, uh, the woman is progressing very well. So uh, there are obviously a couple of things I have to check. Uh, number one, the baby is okay. So um, if um, the midwife is, is happy and uh, there is uh, no um, uh, sign of, uh, of uh, the baby um, getting distressed, uh, that's absolutely fine. 
and uh, making sure that we've got nice, uh, natural, nice, natural and regular strong contractions. And this is uh, uh, important because uh, these all mean that I have time. So um, I, I've got time and I can play with all these things. So breathing techniques, positioning, dimming the light, etc. So basically, um, um, if I had to do an, uh, the epidural, um, I, do the, I do the epidural uh, quickly and uh, uh, usually in a sitting position uh, just to uh, utilize the, uh, the gravitational force. And then uh, I start building the strength of the epidural uh, slowly, which means that uh, the woman uh, may... Uh, get some some uh, extra pain relief, but I'm not killing um, the leg muscle power or uh, the communication between uh, the womb and uh, the vagina either. The cord, this is called the Ferguson reflex, by the way. But uh, I'm not killing uh, this mechanism either. So, so the the peristaltic movement of the pelvic floor is is maintained to some degree. Exactly, exactly. This is my goal. Yes. Uh, after this, uh, to, in order to just uh, mobilize the woman a little bit, we need uh, some help, basically physical uh, assistance um, from a doula or from the husband or the partner uh, just to help protect the woman and, and, uh, and uh, st uh, still uh, uh, staying on a safe side. Uh, protect her from falling basically i'm not saying that uh, uh, that uh, we have to walk around the room so uh, i I, th I don't think it is a very um, uh, achievable goal but at least uh, just changing positions in the bed kneeling in the bed uh, and uh, for this uh, i think uh, we can we can just use uh, um, the 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 other people in the room as so, well so as you're building the the anesthetic slowly yep. you're allowing time for position movement i think so I think so. Awesome. And uh, the other thing is, you know, uh, uh, the doula can help uh, with holding this uh, baby monitor, the CTG monitor, uh, or uh, the, the husband can do that. And the midwife is also happy because uh, uh, they get uh, uh, information from the baby's well-being. So, uh, because often, I think... often the woman is being monitored with a transabdominal transducer at this point. Yes, 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 I think so. And as you're building slowly you're kind of monitoring the the effect that the pain relief is having on the woman's experience exactly exactly cool and you know in this uh, uh, process uh, we have to uh, cooperate with uh, with the husband as uh, you are um, encouraging uh, people in your wonderful program um, uh, because uh, i think in my view it will be uh, the man uh, who is giving emotional charge for the woman uh, to go through this uh, this passageway of uh, the birth process because she couldn't do it on her own. And there is, uh, there is uh, uh, um, dry medical evidence for this, uh, giving continuous support for women in birth uh, is helping, helping uh, a lot uh, for them. I don't want to put words into your mouth, Attila, but, but would you have any concerns about a culture that's moving in the direction of pain-free labor. Yes, definitely. I'm, I am concerned about this um, cultural movement. Uh, I'm not saying that a woman has to uh, suffer from intractable or excruciating pain uh, during labor. I'm just saying that, uh, that uh, we shouldn't uh, ignore the tremendous uh, 
forces and uh, and goals behind uh, the birth process. So uh, let's not min- uh, just minorize. Uh, please, let's avoid minorizing the, the birthing process uh, just to pushing the baby out and, and, uh, and being in excruciating pain. This is not about that. Right. You know, in all my experience of being a man inside kind of birthing systems, if you like, you know, hospitals, they're just tends to be an emphasis on getting it done safely. Yeah. A a job that needs doing, a problem that needs fixing. Let's get it done as safely as possible. And you're suggesting something a little bit different. You're not minimizing the need for safety, but you're suggesting something profoundly different. Exactly, exactly. I never meant to compromise safety of uh, neither the mum nor the baby. So um, uh, my ultimate goal is safety. Uh, However, um, I'm saying that uh, and I'm advocating that uh, we shouldn't uh, um, just uh, see the birth process as a, as a job to be done and, and uh, avoiding uh, uh, going to the court uh, or any complication. Uh, I'm saying that, uh, that uh, this shouldn't be a convey or belt, uh, but uh, a very intimate process, uh, which is uh, energetically uh, and or emotionally, let's say emotionally, uh, emotionally uh, charging um, for uh, both the midwife, uh, the doula, the husband, and everyone involved in this uh, in this wonderful uh, event, I would say. Wow! So the whole event becomes uh, an experience that that creates a foundation for future family and relationship. I absolutely agree with that. As a, it is good for the mum, good for the baby as well. As a, we know that we know very well that um, uh, from perinatal psychology that um, for a baby coming into a loving environment. Uh, um, it is uh, important for them to uh, be able to develop uh, unconditional love and uh, and self love and uh, self respect and uh, better uh, coping mechanisms in life in the future. That was a Swedish study exploring uh, um, this. Uh, so by giving uh, opiate medications such as morphine and and um, um, fentanyl, um, not this much as uh, in the, in the epidural, but uh, much higher doses it it may it may um have an association with uh, um adult or adolescent um, uh, drug addiction and and other personality disorders so i've seen the study yeah yeah okay okay so you know you, you know what i'm talking about yeah okay. familiar with that yeah so so there are generational implications exactly attila you, you've been amazing i i don't want to let you go without you telling us what you're currently doing in terms of, uh, you, you know, the business you mentioned, uh, also where people can get in contact with you. Just let people know what you're doing and where they can get hold of you. Thanks very much for this question. We are Easy Child Limited, which is a, a small family-run uh, company. We teach uh, hypnobirthing and we do doula uh, services as well. And uh, we do birth trauma release as well. It is important for um, women who uh, previously um, went uh, through a traumatic birth experience and uh, it is important for them to release the previous birth trauma uh, before uh, attempting another uh, birth and uh, that way uh, the previous birth trauma cannot get uh, uh, alive and, and active um, it just turns to be um, an, an ordinary um, 
event, uh, an ordinary memory instead of a traumatic memory. So basically, we realized that um, if we want to um, to use um, uh, the woman's inbuilt bodily mechanisms uh, by or instead of an epidural, um, we have to um, start uh, the work much before uh, the birth uh, kicks in. So basically, it is hypnobirthing um, teaching, and uh, my wife uh, is um, a qualified uh, pre- and uh, postnatal exercise and uh, and uh, nutritional um, advisor. So she uh, is uh, doing this because uh, uh, we want to help uh, our clients to avoid gestational diabetes and other complications such as uh, uh, low water uh, oli- called oligohydramnios around the baby. Yeah. Unfortunately, Attila's interview was cut off and we lost the end of it. Mark didn't lose it, I lost it. But you can find him on Doola UK as Attila Jonas and his website is easychild.uk. Yeah, and I tell you what, if you've got conferences coming up and you want someone to be speaking uh, about these kind of themes, I would would pay to listen to, to Attila. And yet you get it here for free. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) now i have a deep respect for anesthetists they've always stood out to me as uh, doctors that are thoroughly aware of physiology you know highly trained very efficient i've worked with many good obstetric anesthetists i have never met an anesthetist walk in the room and turn the light off as a default position yeah i've never met an anesthetist who is aware of his language in terms of um, creating a sense of a relaxed atmosphere. I have never worked with an anaesthetist that tops up the epidural at such a rate, allowing for body movements. I, I, that would just blew my mind. It really did. And I think that's definitely going to change the way I talk about epidural. Yes. One of the things that's striking with Attila, this is, is a very erudite, medically trained man right Hmm. Uh, with an openness and a humility to embrace the power of a woman to birth and uh, it was lovely to interview him and uh, he's fast becoming a friend and another person fast becoming a friend is Johanna Reese Davis from Birthright so I really enjoyed talking to so let's listen to her So my name is Joanna Rees Davis. I am a mother. I'm a barrister, um, but I'm not practicing in a courtroom practice at the moment. And I'm a lecturer and educator for birthrights, as well as a breastfeeding counsellor in a different role. For for those who don't, because obviously most of our listeners are in the birth world, tell me what a barrister actually is. Oh, sorry. Yes, I forget that um, the barrister is the, is the scary person that wears a wig. Cool. Um, that goes into courtroom and is an, a specialist advocate. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer, but I don't come, I come from a privileged white background, but I don't come from a particularly 
public school privilege background so my state school were quite appalled when I said I, want, I think I want to go to Oxbridge and I want to try and be a barrister because it was just unheard of but the one thing I did have on my side was that I was generally known as being quite feisty <laughs> but not necessarily for myself it was always there was some sort of cause at school or something was going wrong for some people or something else was happening and I always was the one that caused a fuss so that something could get corrected um, and, and made easier for those people so in some ways it was always the thing I wanted to do and it was never about me it was always about the other people that I might get to be a voice for who were quite frankly exhausted with trying to do it themselves so you're a champion of the underdog uh, absolutely <laughs> so I qualified as a barrister in a long time ago now 2001 I wanted to go back to Yorkshire because that's where I'm from and I felt I could represent people in my area and although I started off being a do-everything barrister uh, what's called a common law practice so you do a bit of criminal law a bit of family law a bit of civil law I after about three or four years quickly found my niche and my niche was domestic violence survivors and asylum seekers and human rights cases and particularly after about another five or six years where they intersected so particularly cases where somebody had an asylum seeker situation or some sort of immigration status problem, but they were also in a domestic abuse situation. Wow. It was the most amazing job ever. And I absolutely loved it. And I put myself and this is where it gets interesting with the birth situation. I put, I put 100 percent of myself into my job. And I don't think I could have done it without doing that. And I couldn't have got as much reward out of it because we, the narratives that you hear are harrowing. Somehow I'd sort of developed an ability to compartmentalise so that I could get on with my job. And when I fell pregnant in 2008, I was quite convinced that I was going to have this baby and have an elective caesarean and be back to work in six weeks time and leave my baby in a room to cry. And that was the end of that. And how did that pan out? Well, not quite so well, <laughs> although brilliantly well for me and my baby in the long term. Um I stumbled across the idea of a doula. And in interviewing for doulas, one thing sort of led to another. The doula I was interviewing with quite early on said, asked me why I wanted an elective caesarean. And I said, and this is interesting now that I work for birthrights, I want to keep my dignity. I'm very aware of horrible stories coming out of my local country hospital where I lived then. I won't name it. And I'd heard all sorts of horror stories through my own work. And I just thought, I'm not having this. I'm not. I'm a lawyer. I know my autonomous rights. I know I have the right to make decisions about my own childbirth. I don't want to be fighting with people at the door of, you know, and, and having the really hard work, pain of labour. I'm just going to circumvent all this and have an elective cesarean. And then I can just decide what I want for myself, keep my dignity. Nobody's going to assault me or touch me when I don't want them to. And I felt really strongly about it. And the doula said to me, have you considered birthing at home? You're a healthy person. Have you even looked into it? Because it, that might meet your needs as well. And I hadn't at all. And I had all these strange ideas about it. And she suggested, I just just meet just meet with a few independent midwives. You could make your own decision then. And so I did. I met some fantastic independent midwives and almost straight away decided, oh, actually, this might be for me. So to cut a long story short, I didn't have my elective cesarean and I didn't go back to work after six weeks. I had a home birth that transformed me and... Um, really has changed my life. And my little boy Bob was born at home in September 2009 and immediately we started a breastfeeding relationship which had its own challenges and I knew fairly early on I'm not going back to that other job anytime soon and it's not because it's not a wonderful job but I wanted to be a mother as well and I couldn't balance them both. 
And so now you must have found a way of balancing not that job, but this exactly. new one. So what happened was that after about six months and I'd sort of found my rhythm as motherhood and not left him in a room to cry on his own. And I was where I make friends with new mums who I hadn't met before. And I discovered that what I'd had, my incredible transformative birth, which I'd paid for and happily paid for as um, a high rate taxpayer and, and somebody who had some savings, was not available on the NHS, not where I lived. The home birth um, service in my area had been shut down 43 times in one year. And for various reasons, such as it might snow. So that's basically non-existent. Exactly. And these other women were up in arms about it. And we sat around in a cafe one day and we're having a ranty conversation. as We should do something about this. We should really, we should do something about this. And then when we looked at one another, we thought, well, hang on a minute. I'm barrister. This lady's a probation officer. This lady's a teacher. This lady's a marketing executive. What are we doing? We've got privileged background. Let's use this. So one of the women said, we should be something, uh, we should call, we should have a name or something. So it doesn't look like there's just four of us. So we called ourselves Airedale Mums, Airedale being the region of Yorkshire we're from, and decided we would make a grassroots campaign group to change things in our area. So we did that with our babies in slings for about two years and we did change it. We changed it dramatically and we absolutely loved, loved the work. The home birth service is generally never shut down now. I think it had a few problems three times in the last 12 months but that was it um they had a nice midwife-led unit built in one of the hospitals and the other hospital the one i'm most proud of bradford built a birth center which we collaborated with and collaborated with the midwives and gave them as much support as we could fundraised raise awareness um, just loved it and it was through doing that work that elizabeth found me elizabeth at this time was doing something very similar in london and some other lawyers were doing very similar things in pockets of the uk this is elizabeth prochaska elizabeth prochaska yeah who um decided sometime before march 2013 i'm going to start a charity that and i'm going to start an organization that knits this together that brings people together and starts to really educate and empower people as to what the law is around childbirth and particularly what's the human rights situation and she started birth rights in march 2013 i knew about it and was very very supportive thought it was wonderful but i was still well i live in yorkshire not sure I can go to London all the time. My little boy's still little. Um, and Elizabeth had asked me to sort of get on board. And it wasn't until October 13 that I thought, um, no, I, I need to say yes to this. So I went down to the inaugural birthrights conference in November 13 and then said, yes, I'm, I'm involved. I'll do whatever you'd like me to do. And I started lecturing for birthrights after that. So is that your main role with birthrights? Yes, with birthrights, my main role, although I do do private advice as well. So if somebody wants to write to birthrights as either a medical professional or an individual parent or mother, they can write and say, I've got this situation. I really, really need some help with it. Can you give me some advice? And I will, if it's within our domain, I will advise on it privately. Um, Our wonderful executive Maria sorts out who answers what and um, reads them all as well and want to make sure that we've said the right thing so I do that but I also when I'm not doing that go and speak to whoever would like us to come and speak to them about human rights in childbirth on behalf of birthrights. And what sort of things what sort of cases do birthrights take on? Um, Well, there are two different things. We actually intervene in court cases when we can. And that's very much what Elizabeth does a lot of. She actually goes to court and she does the um, actual advocacy in court. Um, Some examples of cases we've intervened in are we intervened in the case um, of a against criminal injuries compensation board, which was a case where 
sadly, a mother had been very ill in her pregnancy. She'd drunk a lot of alcohol. Her baby had been taken into care and her baby had subsequently suffered with fetal alcohol syndrome. And the local council, who were going to have to pay a lot of money now to look after this little person, wanted to sue the original mother to say it was her fault for drinking all the alcohol in pregnancy and that she should pay for the ongoing care. And birthrights intervened in that case and the Supreme Court said, no, she should not. We're not going to get to go down the route of certain American states and start criminalising behaviour in pregnancy. So no, she's not going to pay. This is a very sad and unfortunate case and it does not help our society if we start um, suing or criminalising mothers for things that they have done during pregnancy due to illness and very rare circumstances. So that's one we interviewed in. And we're also currently intervening in the case um, which has been brought by some Northern Irish mothers where the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has said that they cannot access NHS services if they come over from Northern Ireland and want to access abortion services in England. At the moment, the Secretary of State said they can't, can't do that. There's a, an appeal against that and birthrights are intervening in it. So they are the large cases we intervene in. But on the ground, we get very, very frequent inquiries from women saying such things as, I've been told I'm not allowed a home birth. Um, my midwife has said it's okay for me to have this particular thing in my birth plan, but not this. Am I allowed to do this? Um, I'd really like to have this as I give birth, but I've been told this is, there's no precedent for this or it's never going to be allowed. So they're really checking their rights. They're checking yeah. what the situation is. There's a lot of not allowed there. Yes, there is a lot of not allowed. And as we always say, they are not allowed to not allow you. <laughs> yes, snappy. <laughs> Um, the case I just told you about where we're intervening with the situation with Northern Ireland, that only started in November. We, we made our intervention in November. So that's something that's going to be going on throughout 2017. We will at some point be having our own birthrights uh, workshops and birthrights conferences. But something that we are collaborating on at the moment is some online training with the Royal College of Midwives so that midwives can access what we know about human rights work and human rights uh, situations and get to a situation where they can just log in online and they can do some online training using birthrights equipment and resources. They don't have to go to a conference. They don't have to come to a workshop. And that's something that we've just been planning, writing and rewriting, redrafting the slides for in the last few months. Right. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I'm very accessible. excited to be helping with that. Yes, exactly. That's the point. How do we... There's only a few of us working yeah. at birthrights and we're always very, very happy to have more support. Uh, how do we disseminate this? How do we reach as many people as possible? So this year we're really looking at who do we also who do we also need to reach, and how do we do it with minimum resources and without pulling on more resources? Because obviously it is a difficult economic time for many people in the UK. There's only so far fundraising can go. There's only so many times you can ask the same people to give money. So how do we think outside the box? Use social media, use online systems to reach people. And who do you think you currently need to reach? I think one of the particular areas of people we need to reach are more obstetricians and doctors, perhaps paediatricians as well. So yeah. I think something else we've become very aware about, and I think probably lots of people in the birth world, and certainly in 2016, I think liberal progressives throughout the world have probably said this to themselves. We need to make sure we're not talking in an echo chamber. So we've got to make sure that we're not just preaching to the choir talking to one another. Now, it's fantastic. It is fantastic to go to a conference or a workshop and speak to loads of people who are on the same page. There's definitely a place for it. It's really fulfilling and it's really empowering. And you go away from it feeling, yes, my work's relevant. I feel validated in that thing I did the other day. So it's great. But 
we will hit a brick wall yeah, we won't move if forwards. we only ever speak to midwives yeah. and yet the midwives are working in collaboration with perhaps registrars obstetricians gynecologists um pediatricians other doctors surgeons for example who've never heard of birthrights who've got no idea where the legal landscape lies about human rights and that makes it really hard for them and puts them in a really difficult position of having confronting hard conversations in a really stretched work situation. But, so we feel we need in, to reach them. In something that's probably quite a strong hierarchy and they're not necessarily the absolutely. people who have the strongest voice. Yes, absolutely. Even though they're the ones with the women. <laughs> absolutely. And this is where some, some of Mark's work comes into that as well, because the, the idea of narrative and listening to language and the, the power of language is something that we also concentrate very much on in Birthrise. As advocates, we've always loved language. We got into advocacy. We got into specialist court advocacy because we like using words to put something across. We like looking at what's the best way to say this. What's the, what's the worst possible way you could say this? Let's not do that. Um, so looking at words in conflict situations and thinking what best works here, what's the most diplomatic and the most constructive language we can use is really essential. And I think that's something else we've identified as an area to work on this year is the power of language and how can we assist and empower and support people to become more assertive in how they speak when they're in a difficult conflict situation and that's something the RCM uh, the Royal College of Midwives uh, training is seeking to address it's giving case studies it's looking at ways we can deal with this the scope for that to be useful to individual parents to be as well absolutely there's a lot of work to do but we are going to do it it sounds so important I'm really glad you're doing it I think you're um, the epitome of that small group of concerned citizens that can change the world aren't you Thank you. I love that quote. <laughs> it's it's one of it my, comes to mind constantly in this work. It's absolutely one of my driving factors. And my other one, if I'm allowed to go down the road of starting to share favourite quotes, and I use it a lot when I'm teaching and, and lecturing, is start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Because I often get people approach me, a Norwegian midwife approach me at UNICEF and was asked to say effectively to a really horrendous bullying culture, very difficult situation where she really felt hamstrung. She couldn't do anything. So I sat with her for several hours and listened to about it all. And it did turn out that there was one pinprick of hope. There was this particular meeting she had with other staff colleagues who were sort of on the same page as her. And she suddenly realised perhaps she could elongate that meeting. Perhaps they could actually talk about this other thing during that meeting. And perhaps she could just make the suggestion that she'd had at this meeting. And that's I always say to people, please don't try and do some hugely, horribly difficult thing because it will just seem totally overwhelming. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And language is a completely free thing that you can change. Yeah. That was really lovely. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Joe. And no, we will absolute, catch up again pleasure. at some point because, um, as we've said, Birthrights is our official adopted charity for Sprogcast. So we want to support you as much as we can in every way we possibly can. Thank you so much. And we are so grateful for the support. That's You're welcome. Thank you. I did really like her. Oh. I wanted to keep her. <laughs> okay, so if you've got any suggestions or comments... Um, or want to say anything about today's show or suggestions for the future, um, why not get in touch via Facebook or Twitter? If you have been affected by this recent decision by the NMC, uh, Birthrights as a, as a charity would be a good source of support. 
It would, and there is this march. Um, I think, hang on, I think it's on the 21st of March in London. There are details of it on the Facebook page. Um, yeah. That's um, Facebook dot com slash sprogcast and we're also at sprogcast on twitter if you're not one of the 978 people already following us um cool. and we're on itunes where you can leave us a review and i think that's all we've got time for today i think it is thanks karen thank you mark bye bye you've been listening to sprogcast with mark harrison karen hall sprogcast is supported by pinter and martin for all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. SPROGCAST is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.